dealing with Colossians. That is a huge, uh, very important chapter, uh, book in the Bible. And so we're going to kind of go through it today. Um, it's said to be ready in season, out of season, and uh, I got about a month ago this assignment, so I began studying, and I was preparing for chapter 3. And then yesterday, I was verifying chapter 3 was my subject, and they said, no, it's chapter 2. So, oh, okay. So I've kind of did some retooling and preparing, and a couple of good resources you might consider uh, for your own library. Uh, Warren Wiersbe has great material. Uh, they call the B series. This is his one on Colossians, Be Complete. And uh, he has an excellent commentator writer. You would enjoy him. Also, um, William Barclay has his little daily Bible study series. If you're familiar with those, mainly the New Testament. I think they've tried to carry on his tradition with the Old Testament. But uh, the daily Bible studies, if you want something that's um, methodical, takes you through Scripture, it'll take a section of the time. It will go through the um, history, uh, maybe a word study. A devotional thought, it, it all goes to, it's an excellent little thing that I, I took it, I mean, back in the 70s, I went through it, and uh, a very helpful thing to methodically go through a book of the Bible, so consider that as well. I woke up Sunday morning through a little irritation in this right eye, then by Sunday night it had gotten real red, and uh, went to see Dr. Majors yesterday, and he says it's just like a blood clot hematoma that uh, will... Uh, absorb the blood after a while, so don't worry about it. If I look too grotesque, I'll, I'll put on some sunglasses and hide it from you, but uh, we, we will get through this. Our, our assignment today is Colossians 2, 6 through 23. So let me start with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it's been preserved uh, throughout um, history. And now we have it not only in our hands, we have it in many different uh, translations, and we have an abundance that we can simply, with a few clicks on the computer, we can call up any passage and go into great commentary and study about it. So thank you, Father, for the availability of your word. You're preserving it. May this book of Colossians just come to us in power this morning that we see the sufficiency and the preeminence in Christ May we see our standing before you, that we do not have to earn your favor, that we have to uh, gain your attention, but we are yours in Christ completely. So bless our study and our time together, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let me get this little clicker going. There we go. The theme of Colossians, and hopefully the two screens you can see, is that of the fullness of Christ, the preeminence of Christ. And so the fullness of Christ is all that you need, and all man-made regulations and dis 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 disciplines cannot replace the riches you have in God's Son. So the preeminence of Christ, and that is revealed as you look in the chapters. The first chapter, Christ's preeminence declared. The second chapter, Christ's preeminence defended, which we're going to be talking about today. And then Christ's preeminence demonstrated chapters 3 and 4. We say demonstrate, that means you will live it out. It's in your life how you demonstrate the uh, power of Christ. Uh, you're the living example to the world. So it is declared, defended, and then you demonstrate it. So we'll be looking at chapter 2 more specifically today. 
the um, heresy that threatened the Colossians was a combination of Eastern philosophy and Jewish legalism with elements of Gnosticism, which means to know. Uh, from the Greek word gnosis, we have a diagnosis, a diagnosis, you know, that you've come to a conclusion about someone's condition. An agnostic, an A in front of gnosis, would be someone who does not know, an agnostic. In Paul's day, the Gnostics were people who were in the know when it came to the deeper things of God. They were the spiritual aristocracy in the church. So they were kind of the latest and greatest, and uh, they would come along behind Paul and, and the Christian converts and would try to weed their way, worm their way into the congregations and draw them to their philosophy and their way of teaching. The heresy promised people such, as, such a close union with God that they would achieve a spiritual perfection. Spiritual fullness would be theirs only if they enter into the teachings and ceremonies prescribed. There is a full known... I can go to the next one. There is a full knowledge, a spiritual depth, and only initiated, the initiated could enjoy. This wisdom would release them from earthly things and put them in touch with heavenly things. My clicker here. And of course, this teaching was man-made based on traditions, not on divine truth. It grew out of the philosophical question, why is there evil in this world if creation was made by a holy God? These philosophers determined wrongly that matter was evil and that a holy God would not come into contact with the evil matter. So there had to be a series of emanations from God to creation. They had believed in a powerful spirit world that would material things to attack mankind. They also held to a form of astrology, believing that angelic beings ruled heavenly bodies and influenced affairs of earth. So think emanations, that you have God in heaven, and when you finally come down to man on earth, that there's just a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. You, you, you lose quality as you go along. Finally, you get down to earth, where earth is uh, matter, and that's evil, and, and man in the flesh would be evil as well. Then added to the Eastern philosophies was a form of Judaism, uh, legalism. The teachers believed that the rite of circumcision was helpful in spiritual development. They taught that the Old Testament laws, especially dietary laws, were also useful in attaining spiritual perfection. Definite rules and regulations told them what was evil and what was good. So you can kind of see that this teaching would just suck you in. No longer were you free in Christ and you were complete in Christ. Now there were things you had to do to attain this spiritual perfection that they're claiming you can have. So now they're going to call you on what you eat and how you, uh, what you do each day and even the holy days that you celebrate. Um, even men to be circumcised, all that was being called upon by these, uh, this new um, heresy. Since matter was evil, they had to find some way of controlling their human nature in the pursuit of perfection. Two practices resulted. One school was the way to conquer evil matter was to, by means of rigid discipline and self-denial. The other school taught that it was permissible to engage in all kinds of sin. Since matter was evil anyway, it appeared the evil so it could do all they wanted. So either it was complete rigid discipline or it was you could just do anything you wanted. It made no difference. 
It appeared the first opinion was the one predominant in uh, Colossae. It is easy to see how this kind of teaching undermined the very foundation of the Christian faith. These heretics attacked the person, the work of Christ. To them, Christ was merely one of God's many emanations and not the Son of God come in the flesh. The incarnation means God with us, but they taught that God was keeping his distance from us. Because if Christ was in a body and, and matters evil, then therefore he could not be the Son of God. Jesus' work on the cross settled the sin question and completely defeated all satanic forces. He put an end to the legal matters, legal demands of the law, and in fact, Jesus Christ alone is the preeminent one. All that the believers need, in, need are in Christ. He nailed, I said, your wanted poster to the cross. You know, back in the Western days, when you put the wanted poster of it, it said all the things you'd done, all the banks you'd robbed, and you know, the horses you stole, and that type of thing. And so if you think about your wanted poster, you're wanted for the crimes you've committed. Christ, in a sense, took your wanted poster and he nailed it to the cross. That, that those sins, those crimes have been paid for. So the false teachers were not denying the Christian faith, but only lifting it to a higher level. They're saying, we're just making it better. Why don't you follow us? We're making your Christian faith, we're lifting it up, making it improved, a, a better way to follow the Lord. They offered fullness and freedom, a satisfying life that solved all the problems that people faced. When we strive for spiritual perfection or spiritual fullness by means of formulas, disciplines, or rituals, we go backwards instead of forwards. We, be careful when you hear of mixing your faith with yoga, transcendental meditations, oriental mysticism, and the like. We must beware of teachers of the deeper life who offer a system of victory and fullness that bypasses devotion to Jesus Christ. In all things, he must be preeminent. And you've heard this before, but by bears repeating that if it's Jesus plus something, watch out. If it's something minus something, that he is not fully God or he's not fully man, or you try to take away his deity or his humanity, you need to run from that as well. Paul uses the vocabulary of the false teachers, but he did not use their definitions. He used the words in their true Christian meaning. He used the words fullness and perfect and mystery and complete and used over and over again. All, all were used by the Gnostics heretics. Note, look at Colossians 1 verse 27 as we get ready to move into our text. Colossians chapter 1. Let's start with um, 27. To whom Christ willed to make known what is the riches, the glory, the mysteries among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The mysteries among the Gentiles. That would be a catchphrase word by the, the Gnostics. And, and this heresy in the Colossi church was that you know, things are hidden. Only we who are in the know can reveal these things to you. If you are simply in Christ and you don't know the deeper teachings... You won't have this deeper understanding that we can give you. We will openly, we will open this to you. We will show you the mysteries. And Paul uses that same language to say, no, the mystery is in Christ, that he has revealed uh, himself to the Gentiles. Be careful when someone tells you 
We also believe in the Bible, but we offer something more, and it makes our faith even better. Nobody can give me what Jesus Christ has already given me. When all the fullness of Godhead dwelt in him bodily, you can't get any more when you have Christ. You are full and complete in Christ. And there's teaching about second blessings and, and being baptized in the Holy Spirit and those kind of things. I think many times those have come out of ignorance because when you're in Christ, you have it all. It's a matter of learning who you are in Christ, all your privileges in Christ, all the promises you have in Christ. To know that, there's not a need for a second blessing or a baptism of the Holy Spirit that other denominations would teach. But Paul writes in chapter 1 that Christ is preeminent in the gospel, in redemption, in creation, in the church, and in his ministry. Chapter 2, Paul declares the danger of the false teachers. Paul warns Christians to be aware of empty philosophies, religious legalism, or man-made disciplines. In chapter 3 and 4, Paul presents the antidote to false teaching, a godly life. Paul says it is our Christian duty to give God glory in keeping pure, enjoying fellowship and other believers with other believers by loving each other at home and being faithful at work, seeing to witness for Christ and serve him effectively. Unless doctrine leads to duty, it is no use to, no, no use to us. Wrong doctrine will always lead to wrong living. So we live in a day now of religious tolerance, where one religion is just as good as another. We've been, that's kind of the, the mantra today. Some try to take the best from various religions and manufacture their own private religion. Eastern religions, asceticism, man-made philosophies are secretly creeping into our churches. They're not denying Jesus, but they are dethroning him and robbing him of his rightful place of preeminence. So now moving to chapter 2, this is kind of how it breaks down, that uh, keep making spiritual progress, verses 4 through 7. Watch out for spiritual perils, verses 8 through 10. Draw upon your spiritual provisions, verses 11 through 15. And then the last part, 16 through 23, there's warnings to the believer. Let no one judge you. Let no one declare you unworthy of the prize. And let no one enslave you. Paul uses several vivid pictures to illustrate uh, the spiritual progress. Looking verses 5 through 7 in chapter 2. 5 through 7. For even though I am absent in the body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him, established in your faith, just as you were instructed in overflowing in gratitude. So now he gives us pictures of, of these illustrations. One's an army. It says in verse 5, the being of good discipline and stability. These pictures are that of a military squad, that they are arranged in, in their order, that they are steadfast, that they are presenting a united front, ready to fight the enemy. And in verse 6, it talks about being a pilgrim. Paul already encourages readers to walk worthy of the Lord. And later he used this image again in chapters 3, 7, and verse, chapters 4 and 5. Paul uses this image of pilgrims several times in the book of Ephesians. Pilgrims are to walk in the same way they originally received Christ, by faith. 
the Gnostic teachers would try to say that there's some new truths that you need to follow. You started with Christ, you must continue in Christ, is what Paul is saying. Don't go to some new philosophy or teaching. You started with faith, you must continue in faith, and this is the way that you make spiritual progress. Then he says that in verse 7, that uh, like a tree, it says, uh, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith. So the picture of a tree, thanks you of a, a Psalm 1, that we shall uh, meditate on the word day and night. We like that tree planted by the rivers of waters. It'll yield its fruit in its season. Its leaf will not wither. Whatever you do shall prosper. The picture of a tree that you're rooted and growing. Interesting thing about trees, it says that we're not to be tumbleweeds, you know, where we're blowing around from place to place. We're actually putting down roots. And it also says that we're to be transplanted from place to place. And uh, I realize there are times that we need to make a change in churches because of maybe job transfers or we need to, um, maybe if there's false doctrine being taught. But I would encourage people to, to find a church home and stay in it. And weather the storms up and down, link arm to arm, and, and be uh, united in your connection with the local body of Christ. You know, they talk about the redwood trees in California. That uh, you, know, you think those roots would go deep because they were so tall. They were about 300 feet tall, one of the tallest trees in the, in the world, and some are over 2,500 years old. Think about that. But you look at the root system. They're really very shallow, but they intertwine. They overlap one another, and they intertwine together. So when the storms of life come, it's not individual trees standing individually. It's trees standing together by the roots being intertwined together. So we want our roots to go into soil as receiving nourishment, but we also find nourishment and strength from each other. And then it says that we are to be a building. In 7b, it says that, that you should be established in your faith. You were instructed. So that of a building, being built up, when you're in Christ, that you have found your true foundation. From then on, we build by grace. The word edify is often used in Paul's letters simply mean to build up. To make spiritual progress means to be adding to the temple, our, our, our bodies, as we build up our faith in Christ. Then in chapter 2 verse 7 it says that we should be like a school and 7 it says um, you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude do I have instruction that of a school you're being taught there's the word of God being built and strengthened in in your faith Epaphras was the pastor of this church you probably know from your study that Paul had not visited Colossae that uh, his uh, converts had gone Epaphras had gone and actually established this church. So he's writing to them to encourage them. And so being instructed, being taught uh, the word of God. Then the last illustration is that of a river. Indeed, in it says overflowing with gratitude. The word of, means that of a picture of a, a river was overflowing its banks, that uh, you can drink from that water. It's nourishing, that it's uh, good for the soul. It's like an artesian well that's always pumping up and giving us rivers of waters that flows into eternal life, that grows deeper and deeper. Then it says, with thanksgiving is a mark of the Christian maturity. When a believer is, a, is, is in Christ, he should have a thankful disposition, a thankful spirit. Um, hopefully that's 
being marked about who you are, that there's this a gratitude and appreciation. There's a thankfulness in your life for, for others. It says that in in First Corinthians First Thessalonians five seventeen, be thankful in all things. As we should have a thankful, gracious appreciation for life, and we show that to others. There's that uh, you can be approachable. So Paul says thanksgiving is a mark of the Christian life. When I believe is abounding in thanksgiving, he is really making making progress. Okay. By reviewing these pictures, we see how the growing Christians can easily defeat the enemy and not be led astray. If his spiritual roots are deep in Christ, he will not want any of the soil. If Christ is his sure foundation, he has no need to move. He is studying and growing in the word. He will not easily be enticed by false doctrine. And if his heart is overflowing with thanksgiving, he will not even consider turning from the fullness he has in Christ. A grounded, grateful believer will not be led astray. And you probably would agree with that, wouldn't you? Watch out for spiritual peril, verses 8 through 10. See to it that no one takes your captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all, the rule of authority. So watch out for spiritual peril. Paul continues his military theme by saying, See to that no one takes you captive. The false teachers did not go out, go out and win the lost. Rather, they preyed upon the Christian converts. A sign of a cult is those who are, who, who, whom they are reaching. Most people of cults were once a member of mainline denominations. You rarely see your cults out there really trying to reach the lost person. They're, they're preying on those who've already been converted to Christ, and now they're trying to twist them and turn them to their own particular belief systems. So the Apostle Paul, oops, sorry, I went too far. The Apostle Paul, when he was persecuted, the persecutor Saul was exceedingly zealous of the traditions. Galatians 1.14, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for traditions of my fathers. The Pharisees added 613 laws to the Old Testament teachings. They were so burdensome, some jokingly said it was best to stay in bed on the Sabbath and to keep breaking the hundreds of the do's and don'ts. How you gathered food, how you washed your hands, what you could prepare, what you couldn't prepare, how far you could walk, what you could lift. All those things were being spelled out for the, Judy, the, Judy, the Jewish people during the days of the Pharisees. And so it was just a burden, very difficult to follow. And what did Paul say? I am a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was following all that when he was Saul. He was practicing uh, all those teachings. So this sounds opposite of what Jesus said in Matthew 11, 28 through 30. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Some of that weariness and burden can be, I'm just tired of trying to follow all these 613 extra laws. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Not only does he say my yoke is easy, my burden is light, he's saying it's a double yoke 
Jesus says, I'm on one side. Put your head in through this collar on the other side, and we'll pull life's load together. Sometimes when life's too difficult, I'll carry it for you. If you think you're hot stuff and you can pull life on your own, I'll pull back and let you pull for a while. See how long you last. And so it's that tandem relationship we have with Christ that he helps us pull life's loads. And he says, if you go with me, if you follow my lead, we can pull life's load together. It will not be a burden for you. We can do it together. It's a one-on-one relationship. A child excitedly said to his mother, I know the name of God. The mother said, really? What's his name? So the son said, his name is Andy. He said, well, how do you know it's Andy? He said, well, we sang the song, Andy walks with me, Andy talks with me, Andy tells me that I am his own. Well, his name, we know, isn't Andy, but the rest is true. Jesus does talk to us. He does walk with us. He tells you that you are his own. It's a personal relationship. And that's the difference from philosophies and teachings of so many other religions, that we have a personal, intimate relationship with God himself, the, the son Jesus, uh, who triumphantly is, is sitting before the Father in heaven, interceding for us, and uh, has that personal relationship with us. So the question comes is why dabble in empty, hollow philosophy when we have all the fullness in Christ? This is like turning away from satisfying rivers to drink at a dirty cistern of the world. Jeremiah 2.14 says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and have hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that cannot hold water. Jesus said, Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And you found that to be true, isn't it? How can you be satisfied with further enslavement, further dutiful responsibilities you have to, to obey a human leader when you have the freedom in Christ? So he's saying to watch out for those dogs. This is in Philippians 3. This is Paul's uh, comments. Uh, those evildoers, those manipulators of the flesh, for it, if we who are the circumcision... We who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons of such confidence, if someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness, based on law, faultless. But whatever were gained to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participate in his sufferings, becoming like him in death. So all that Paul accomplished in his uh, days as a, uh, a man following the tribe of Benjamin, being a, a Hebrew of Hebrews, being a, um, a, a Pharisee of Pharisees, he realized that uh, that was all, if you really take the translation, it means, I can say it in this, in this audience, it means like dung. It's just like 
horse manure. It, it is of no value. The, you know, he was so proud of these accomplished problems when he was Saul. But when God met him on the Damascus Road and brought him to, to faith in Christ, then all those accomplishments meant nothing to him. Now he's, he's glorying in who he is in Christ. So spiritual growth is not by addition, Jesus plus something, but by nutrition, by feasting on God's word and knowing who we are and we're complete in him. The more we understand scripture, the more we see the beauty of Christ, the more we see the promises that are made to us, the more we can claim, the more we can yield ourselves more fully to his teachings and his promises. The false teachings that threatened the Colossian church was made up of several elements, oriental mysticism, astrology, philosophy, and Jewish legalism. Jewish legalism insisted that the converts submit to circumcision and obey the Old Testament law. Gnostics, Gnostic legalism said Jewish law would help the believers become more spiritual. If they were circumcised, watched their diet, observed the holy days, then they would become part of the spiritual elite of the church. Well, I don't think I want to be part of that elite, would you? That doesn't sound very enticing to me. You know, this is why we had the council of the Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15, that the converts in Antioch were expressing faith and trust in Christ. They were Gentiles, and the Jewish believers in Jerusalem said, wait a minute, I thought only Jews could become Christian. Now we're seeing Gentiles come to faith in Christ. What are we going to do about it? So they called the Jerusalem council, and they had to discuss, what are we going to do about these Gentiles who are putting faith and trust in Christ, do we make them do what we do? Do we require the men to be circumcised? Are we going to make them follow the dietary laws that the Jewish people follow? Or, or what's, what's the requirement? Can we be one in Christ or are we going to be separate entities? And thankfully, God moved in, in the powerful way of the, of the Jerusalem council, and they said, no, we're all one in Christ. And if, Jew, if the Jewish Christians want to continue following now, the Old Testament laws, that's fine, but their faith's in Christ. The Gentiles put their faith and trust in Christ. There's no more burden that needs to be added to them. In the... Go back one. In the Old Testament, circumcision was a sign of God's covenant with the Jewish people. There was a physical operation that had a spiritual significance. The trouble was the Jewish people depended on the physical and not the spiritual. You know, we put their trust on what happened. You, know, you trust more the act than you do what it symbolizes. A mere physical operation could never convey spiritual grace. People make the same mistake today when they depend on some religious ritual to save them, such as baptism, Lord's Supper, church membership, tithing, whatever. We, we have to make sure that these things are good, but if we're using any of those as a substitute for their knowing that when they die that they'll go to heaven, uh, that should put off uh, bells and red flags should wave when someone says, well, I know my name's on the church roll. Well, I know I was baptized. Buster Brown baptized me. That's got to get me into heaven. And I'm, I tithe. I give uh, more than 10% of my income to the church. And all those things are good in themselves because they're showing obedience. It shows that you want to follow Christ and you're being obedient to him. But when you are using any of those as a marker or your salvation, then you put your trust in the very act activity instead of faith and trust in Christ. So we talked then about baptism, the New Testament equivalent of circumcision. 
The literally means of baptism is to dip or to immerse. And so we have interesting discussions with our other denominational friends who sprinkle and pour. And uh, we realize that baptism is not salvific. It doesn't save you. But it's an act of obedience that once you put your faith and trust in Christ, you want to follow the Lord in baptism. It's an outward sign of an inward commitment. So you should be glad to be baptized. It's a sign that you're, you're saying to the world, I'm a, I'm a Christ follower. I'm connected with this church. I want to make my statement. I'm coming out of the closet in a good way. Because <laughs> you're, you're stating publicly that you are a Christian and you're glad to be identified with Christ. You're picturing Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and your own death, burial, and resurrection. You're raised to walk in newness of life. So watery baptism is simply a picture of the spiritual reality. And so we, we realize it's symbolic. Uh, so I, I like to liken baptism like to my wedding ring. You know, I could have a four or five-year-old could wear a, a wedding band, and uh, he might like it, but it doesn't mean he's married. You know, my wedding band means I've been committed to one woman for over 34 years. And there's a relationship established there, and it's been ongoing, and it continues to this day. And that's what my ring symbolizes. It's just gold, it's round, but it symbolizes much more than the metal uh, or the gold. It's actually a symbol of my relationship with my wife, Tama. And so that's what baptism is. symbols a relationship. It's been ongoing ever since you put your faith and trust in Christ. As we mentioned that he nailed our wanted poster to the cross. The law was, was against us because we could never meet its holy demands. When Christ shed his blood, he canceled the huge death that was against sinners. The great transaction took place, spoken in 1 Corinthians 5:21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's an amazing verse, isn't it? Uh, you just take some time to meditate on that. It's just amazing that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become his righteousness. So Jesus not only dealt with sin and the law and the cross, he also dealt with Satan, speaking of crucifixion. Jesus said, now is the time for judgment of this world. Now the prince of the world will be driven out. The death of Jesus on the cross looked like a great victory for Satan, but turned out to be a great defeat for him when Satan cannot, he could not recover. It makes me think of Genesis 3.15, the first promise of the, mess, of the Messiah when, when it was written, said, I will put enmity between you and woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will, cr you will crush, you will strike his heel. So then it says, believers beware, in verses 16 through 23. Paul gives us three warnings. We'll get there. I guess. Well, maybe the clicker is going to die on me. Maybe I've, I've died. I've killed it. <laughs> Let's lead, read these following verses, and we'll, we'll wrap up our teaching for this morning. Verses 16. Try it again. Okay. All right. Um, I forgot where I ended up now. Let me do the reading anyway, because I think we need to probably wrap up. We're almost at 1030. 16 through 23 of chapter 2. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge regard to food or drink or respect to festivals or new moons or Sabbath days. Think 
the things which are a mere shadow of which is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and worship of angels, uh, taking a stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his very fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from which the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and the ligaments grow with a growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to de de decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, all referring to things destined to perish with use? In accordance with the commandments I teach of these of men, these are matters which, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom is self-made religions and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but no one, no value, again, of fleshly indulgence. So he's basically saying, don't allow yourself to get into this position where you're following man-made rules and traditions and, and regulations. Don't feel like you have to follow certain commands about what day to worship. Now, we believe, uh, as New Testament Christians, that it's Sunday. But I would put it this way, that if you're worshiping on a regular basis, if we work on Sunday, what if you made Saturday your day of worship and you may went to church on Saturday night? Uh, the idea that you should be seven days regular. And in the Old Testament, you had so many festivals and so many special celebrations that to keep track of all those would be very difficult. So he's saying it's not so much the day of the calendar or what you eat or the activities. It's not how you beat your body or you try to... Uh, Put yourself subjecting your body to great pain. You're getting God's recognition. Uh, you don't need to do all that. It's not regulations. It's not requirements you have to fulfill. It's just simply faith and trust in Christ. It talks about the eating and the exercising and that type of thing. You can go to extremes with that. You can say, okay, well, if it doesn't matter, I'll just be 300 pounds and eat anything I want. Or you can be on the other side where you're so concerned about the body that you're you're so concerned about exercise and diet that it becomes almost a idol itself, that you're going to the gym all the time and you're buying to certain foods and you're looking for the next you know, plastic surgery to take, keep that youthful look. And uh, it's not called to do that. We're not called to do that. To be, how would I put it? I guess to be presentable enough, but you're not just overly wrapped up in yourself. Does that make sense? Uh, enjoy being who you are without having to put on so much. It's like it says in First Peter 3 that you don't worry about the adornment of hair and the gold and the, and the braiding of your hair and the outward look, but it's the in, inward gentle and quiet spirit that the, the Lord takes knowledge of and, and has a powerful influence. So from this teaching, we realize that we are complete in Christ, that don't let anyone make you think there's something that you're missing because there's some new thought, there's this new hidden belief. And if you'll simply leave that ECBC church and come join us, you will find fulfillment and hidden truths that you would not have known otherwise. And it's not the truth as much as in ECBC as, a, as the truth is in here. So put your full faith and trust in Christ and not let yourself be enslaved ever again by the, the rudimentary teachings of man your full faith and trust in Christ. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for this group. I thank you for their study of, of Colossians. Uh, help them, Father, to see who they are in Christ, uh, as it says in Colossians 1. What a, a tremendous understanding of your greatness, your preeminence, 
your power, your majesty. And Father, help us to know we are free in Christ, that we are free indeed, that we know the truth and the truth has set us free, and that we should not be beholding to any man for anything we have to, to, to do or to eat or to wear, what day we worship, and we are truly free in Christ. So bless uh, this group as they further study, and I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.